Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we feature a wide-ranging conversation with Paul Howarth, who is the CEO of the UK's National Nuclear Laboratory. Paul tells Physics World's Mateen Durrani about what inspired him to follow a career path in nuclear science and technology. And he explains how the National Nuclear Lab underpins the safe operation of nuclear facilities in the UK, some of which, he says, are vital in helping the UK meet its greenhouse gas reduction targets. So I'm delighted to be joined by Paul Howarth, who's Chief Executive of the UK's National Nuclear Laboratory, which says its purpose is nuclear science to benefit society. Paul's a physicist by training and a fellow of the Institute of Physics, which publishes Physics World. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Um, so we'll come on to what the NLL does, but um, let's start with your background, Paul, because you're a physicist. How did you, how did you first get into physics and uh, where, where did you study? Yeah, so I, I think um, as getting into physics, I think it was through the fascination of astronomy, uh, wanting to just understand uh, the universe. I, I grew up living near to Jodrell Bank Radio Telescope in Cheshire. Uh, and in fact, having travelled around the world, I live really close to it now, actually, by pure coincidence. But uh, always fascinated by Jodrell Bank, uh, by astronomy. And um, really, I think that pulled me into physics of wanting to do physics and astrophysics. I thought, well, there's a topic that sounds really interesting, an opportunity to, um, yeah, so I suppose put the maths and some understanding behind the universe. So that was my, that was my routine. And I went off to Birmingham University to do the um, physics and astrophysics course there. And then, um, then you graduated. Where, where did your career take you next after that? Um, graduated from that, uh, and uh, I then had a real interest. Uh, actually, on that course, there's a lot of nuclear energy um, taught topics, uh, and uh, the university at Birmingham has quite a long history associated with nuclear energy. Uh, so I decided to stay on. Uh, they do a master's course there, physics and technology, nuclear reactors, and also to look to do a PhD. I've done three years at, um, at the university to do my first degree. And I thought, hey, another three years to a PhD. I like the, the thoughts of, you know, the research environment. And, um, uh, yeah, the team there at, at, um, at Birmingham were great in that they um, uh, had lots of links across the industry. So I found nuclear fusion really quite fascinating, thinking, well, that would be really good if it's possible to actually um, realise it. And um, they had links down to the Joint European Taurus Programme down at, um, at Cullum. So I found myself uh, whisked off down there, having met uh, David Weaver at, uh, at Birmingham University at the time, who then said, look, if that's what you want to do, we can get you down to uh, the Joint European Taurus. And uh, that was my, my first introduction to my PhD was uh, full-time being in, in industry. <laughs> I would say it was good fun. The first thing they did, was they sent me off to the Plasma Physics Summer School uh, that year that it was taking place in Italy on the shores of Lake Como. So I started my PhD in the first week uh, in this beautiful Italian villa, <laughs> the shores of Lake Como. I think the Institute of Physics in the UK, uh, I've got, uh, they've got something to match there. Apparently, 
It's owned by the Institute of Physics Equivalent in Italy, and this is where they hold the summer schools. So, uh, boy, what a start to a PhD that was. Yeah, <laughs> not bad. Yeah. Um, and then you did your PhD. What, what happened? When did you graduate and where did you go after that? Yeah, so, so my PhD, um, so that was in, um, uh, and, well, uh, the, the Nuclear Physics Association with Fusion Devices. And it was actually just at the time where they started the first deuterium tritium experiment at uh, JET. So 1991 was the date that they first did that. TV crews and everything turned to the BBC. Were there and literally the first thing that happened when I walked in through the doors at Jam, I mean, coming back from Italy, was um, uh, a TV crew interviewing me about uh, nuclear fusion. And I didn't know anything about it. I just started with a PhD. So <laughs> I, just, I just said, this is awesome. Uh, you know, it's going to be fantastic. Uh, so I had a, I had a, a really enjoyable time uh, doing my PhD there, looking at, um, we built effectively a tomographic scanner to look at the toroidal cross section of the, uh, of the plasma. So then uh, it's really actually the first cross-sectional measurements of the plasma looking at the uh, neutron and gamma emissions that uh, took place. So, yeah, it's it's really interesting that to think that I've done my PhD in that and, and nuclear fusion energy, if that's where it goes, then, you know, that will be um, uh, uh, standard stuff that will be done in the in the future. So it was great to be at that, you know, leading edge of, uh, of nuclear nuclear fusion. Thoroughly enjoyed that time. And then your career today has been in the nuclear industry, isn't it? So um, how long have you been at the uh, National Nuclear Laboratory? Yeah, uh, so I finished my uh, PhD and uh, my external uh, examiner actually worked at Satterfield uh, and uh, he got in touch to say, look, your PhD is exactly in line with what we are doing up at Satterfield in neutron and gamma ray uh, diagnostic instrumentation, but for uh, nuclear fission, uh, it's actually for reprocessing plants. So I worked on the plutonium finishing lines up at Sellafield. So a quick transfer up to um, uh, Cumbria, uh, which again, you know, fantastic part of the world. Really enjoyed Oxford, but uh, you know, moving up there was uh, was wonderful. And uh, yeah, worked on the uh, the plutonium finishing uh, lines that um, uh, were associated with the reprocessing plants up at Sellafield. Um, during that time, I had uh, uh, also had an offer to go to Japan to do a postdoc through the Royal Society, uh, working on um, uh, plasma physics associated with semiconductor industry. And whilst I was up in Cumbria, this letter turns up uh, to say, congratulations, you have been awarded this postdoc position in Japan that I actually forgot about. <laughs> so I explained to BNFL, uh, who I work for all the time, to say, look, I've got an opportunity to go to Japan and take like a, a year's break. Um, I'll go to Japan because Japan's really important in terms of nuclear energy. So I said, look, I'll go and study in Japan, work there, get to know Japan, come back afterwards. And uh, yeah, all credit to BNFL. It was actually a, a lady who's known to the Institute of Physics, Dame Sue Ian. Uh, nice, yeah, know her well. And uh, yeah, you'll know her well. And uh, she agreed to it. So all credit to, to Sue. And uh, I went off to uh, Japan, uh, got married, headed out there with my wife, Victoria. I said, actually, whilst I was there, it was a great time. We worked on um, uh, for the semiconductor industry using plasma technology um, uh, uh, to do measurement systems using lasers to understand you know, the plasma interactions with making semiconductors. So a bit of a different area for me, but really fascinating. But I said to BNFL, look, I'm over here. Why don't I stay in Japan <laughs> and, uh, and spend a bit more time? I actually really enjoyed it over there. 
I uh, thought, oh, I've gone through all the hassle of getting over it, uh, to the country and work on the, the Japanese um, nuclear energy program uh, for a bit, which I did. So I spent about another 12, 18 months there. Then I, I came back to the UK, worked for British Nuclear Fuels and worked across various sites in the, uh, in, in the UK looking at uh, novel, innovative technologies, um, and, and actually there was, there was a connection continued to plasma physics about what it could be used, how we could use that for uh, processing nuclear fuel, manufacturing nuclear fuel, looking at advanced reactors, and so yeah, that was a really wonderful time. Got to know everything about the nuclear industry and um, how um, uh, uh, we could look at different reactor. Uh, systems in in the uh, well in the UK and in the world to meet the energy demand requirements, and I think that's when I really got into recognizing the importance of energy, uh, climate change, you know, net zero. Uh, just looking at the 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 need for uh, an energy source like nuclear, coupled to renewables, to address the uh, the challenge. So you know, I, I felt really quite passionate. About being involved in in nuclear, uh, so yeah, it was it was a great great time to be involved in the industry. Wow, so <laughs> powers of persuasion to let you, your bosses take you to Japan and then stay out there. I like it, um, very good. Uh, so then, yeah, National Nuclear Laboratories. I mean, how, how familiar are people? Do you often have to explain to people what the NNL is? Well, you're going to have to yeah, do it again yeah, now to, yeah, to our listeners. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, you, you do. You do actually, uh, Massin. Yeah, you have to explain. To people, the, the origins of it actually, um, uh, the it's certainly in the UK around 2002, the early 2000s, uh, the government set out a, a really laudable strategy for 60% reduction in CO2 emissions, which you know right right direction of travel. Uh, but uh, they took a view of getting there without doing it via nuclear. And what we wanted to do was to ensure that nuclear was appropriately recognised. So. We went on quite a long journey of engaging MPs, uh, the House of Lords, uh, big industry. We went around, you know, communities to to really um, explain the benefit of nuclear. At the time, uh, then the government formed the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority. But what they also had in the UK was the research and technology capability. This this sort of like strategic. Uh, um, um, it wasn't an organization at the time, but this effectively, this, this grouping of this capability within the country, and the government wasn't sure what to do with it. Does it hang on to it? Does it sell it? Does it divest it? And we tried to make the case to government to say, look, this is strategic, technically important know-how about everything associated with nuclear, nuclear reactors and nuclear power. You need to hold on to it and you need to keep it. It's, it's a strategic capability the country has. Um, and we suggested the formation of an entity, the National Nuclear Laboratory, following the U.S. model uh, that they have, you know, the big U.S. national labs like Idaho, Pacific Northwest, Oak Ridge. And uh, I, I worked closely with um, uh, Battelle in the United States and at the time Manchester University. So I co-founded the Dalton Nuclear Institute with a colleague in Manchester. We recognize the importance of the academic capability in the country, making sure that uh, it was retaining and developing and growing nuclear capability. Um, given there was, at the time, as I say, a bit of a phase out of nuclear, we were concerned that the country needed to hang on to its nuclear expertise and capability. 
So we work really closely with Manchester. They invested a lot. We set the institute up. I worked with Battelle in the US National Labs, and we proposed to the UK government to set up the entity, the National Nuclear Laboratory. So what sort of what sort of facilities do you have then? Because you've got you know several thousands of people, and what do they do, and how are they organised? Are they under one umbrella? Yeah, so um, we've got a lot of really quite specialised facilities. So if you were to rebuild them tomorrow, it's about probably about three billion pounds worth of nuclear facilities that are absolutely state of the art, you know, unique in nuclear that enable you to handle anything that comes out of the nuclear industry. So whether it's uranium, plutonium, spent fuel, high active waste, inactive engineering, riggles, et cetera. And basically across everything that's done in nuclear, what we do, uh, the NNL, is to make sure that there's a, a real mechanistic understanding of any process that happens. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the R&D is really to underpin safe operations of whatever you're doing in nuclear. And so you can demonstrate, you know, rightly so, to the regulator or to the general public, look, we've, we've got an absolute bottom-up mechanistic understanding, like from first principles, of the processes that are taking place, whatever you're doing in nuclear. And uh, that's what we effectively do. We sit in between universities and between industry. We have um, uh, you know, over half of the work, probably 60% of the workforce are uh, like physicists, technologists, you know, engineers that, um, and subject matter experts that really understand um, and are at the leading edge of their field in the mechanistic understanding of processes, but related from, say, academic research um, in universities right through to understanding what happens on plants, whether those are reactors or reprocessing plants or fuel production facilities. So we can demonstrate, we absolutely understand, you know, what's happening in these facilities, how they can operate them, and, and to do so in, in a safe manner. It, they think about nuclear R&D compared to other industries. Other industries, R&D is about, say, developing, you know, new gadgets or gizmos or widgets. What we, what we really do is underpinning the safe, you know, operation of anything that happens uh, across the nuclear industry. I mean, there's a couple of significant new nuclear build projects going on in the UK. I mean, what, what sort of challenges do you find in terms of getting nuclear off the ground? There's always a hell of a lot of opposition to it, isn't there? I mean, what does that, that must frustrate you trying to sort of explain the benefits? Yeah, it's been, yeah, you're right. It's been a really interesting time, actually, to engage with, um, well, politicians, members of the general public, lots of stakeholders outside the industry as to making the case for nuclear and how do you go about doing uh, nuclear. And I've dealt with a number of energy ministers in, in my time that said, well, nobody's knocking on the door to build nuclear reactors. And we say, well, that's because we've got to get the framework right to enable them to happen. And when you look at the the economics of building nuclear, it's really quite different to other forms of generation. And at the moment, say for fossil fuel, the, the it's really quite opposite I find it quite fascinating. The like the plant build cost can be high for say fossil fuel plants, but it's pretty certain because you know how to do it because you've done it lots of times. But your fuel cost is potentially even higher and even more uncertain. But if you're you're in the same boat as everybody else because everybody else is exposed to that. If you're building nuclear, your capital cost is really high, but your fuel cost is low. 
but you've got to get over this huge hurdle of your upfront capital cost. And if you're not building many plants, then it's not just the capital cost, it's the cost of capital. It's what the market effectively charges you because of the risk and uncertainty that makes nuclear expensive. If you get going around the circle the right way, the more you build, the more certain you are, the more certain you are, the cheaper it is to borrow money, the cheaper it is to borrow money, the lower the overall cost of, of nuclear. And that's where we need to get to. So we're just at that turning point now where we need to get to in a position, we need to get to a position where the more you build, the more certain you are, and that will drop the cost of of, of nuclear. So it's been I've really enjoyed the, the journey of engaging stakeholders outside nuclear to explain that this is what we need to do and this is how we need to move forward. And I'm really pleased the work that we did, say, 20 years ago to, to then get the government to recognise that actually you need a balanced mix, you need renewables, you need nuclear, you need carbon sequestration, you need energy efficiency, you need all the tools in the toolbox to address the size of this uh, challenge that the government has gone back to nuclear now. And not only that, but we're looking at building large gigawatt plants, potentially small modular reactors, advanced modular reactors, fusion. You know, we're, we're looking at all of it now. So actually, it's a really exciting time to be to be involved in nuclear. So I've been through a bit of a dip and then out the other side. And, and now it's uh, it's getting really interesting again. Is it frustrating, though, because you talk about long term and building lots of plants. But then if you're dealing with ministers and governments that come and go, and that short-term cycle of politics, you know, they're not thinking long-term in 20, 30 years. It's all about resilience. You've got to keep going. You've got to keep <laughs> going all the way. It's Yeah, it's, it's a lot. You can probably see in the background, I'm a Manchester City supporter. And, that, and I've been a Manchester City fan, like, all my life. We've been down in the third division, you know, with, uh, and that years ago. But now we've on, we're on a rise again. You've just got to keep going. It's a bit like that, really. Um, <laughs> you believe in it, you know, and you believe it's going to come good. Um, and th th that's been a great thing that it's something if you strongly believe in it, you think this is the right thing to do. You've just got to keep going. And, yeah, it is hard. You know, you do meet, um, say, you know, stakeholders or it could be politicians or, you know, people who disagree with it. And, and you, you rise to that challenge of, of engaging and explaining and that how to how to take it forward um, because you, you you know you just believe it's the right thing to do. We, we have to do this. We've got to get into a situation where we're addressing climate change. And as I say, whether it's nuclear or renewables, whatever it is, you need everything to address this, given the size of the challenge. <laughs> so I've never heard the nuclear industry compared to Manchester City. I'm a Birmingham City fan, so I don't know how we compare with that. Anyway, we've got we've got new owners, so uh, maybe we're on the uh, there's a comparison there. But you, you talked about the modular reactors. You know um, you, that that's you often hear them talked about as the sort of the future. And I saw last week a, a new uh, partnership between the National Physical Laboratory and Rolls Royce on something to do yeah. with monitoring uh, reactors. I mean. You know, where do you stand on modular? Are they can they really be cheaper? Can they really be? Uh, you know, if you don't have that economy of scale of the big plants, um, if you yeah, have to build them multiple time, you know, is is there a future for modular? I mean, you're going to yeah. say yes, probably. Well, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Uh, it's a really interesting question, actually, uh, Martin. It comes back to like the economics of nuclear. So, in the 1980s, the economies of scale drives you to think actually, if I'm going to build a nuclear plant. I need to put as much like nuclear in it as possible. I need to make it as big as possible and that to get as much nuclear onto one site in one facility. So like I'm only building 
the reactor pressure vessel once and only building all the concrete around it around it once. So that drove that drove the industry towards really large plants. The, the difficulty with that is the the capital outlay for one single plant gets really big. And it's difficult for any organization to be able to outlay that and to get over this initial hurdle of not just the capital cost, but the cost of capital to start with. So what's happened more recently is recognizing, hold on, maybe we trade off some of that scale of economies and actually build more plants, but build them smaller and we build more of them. So then, as I mentioned earlier, we get going around that circle the right way of greater confidence, building more plants, uh, build them in a modular uh, manner. And then that, it, it, I say, it might not be quite as efficient per reactor, but you're offsetting that versus the fact the market would say, you, I'm confident in you building them because you've built so many of them that the capital cost and the cost of capital effectively reduces. And so that drives nuclear economics. That's what makes nuclear economics really interesting compared to other plants. So that's where there's a lot of interest. Um, there's You've probably seen through in the UK, Great British Nuclear have done a down selection effectively to like six reactor systems to take forward that are the small modular uh, plants that follow that um, uh, philosophy in terms of the economics. I mean, do you think there's going to be much opposition from sort of local communities to modular reactors? I mean, I mean, the advantage of the big plants is that you only have them in certain parts of the country and you've got the workforce there who obviously will be keen to work there and they see the job opportunities. Is that is that going to be an issue with those small modular reactors that you're going to have multiple challenges with different communities persuading them to have them built in places that maybe have no tradition with nuclear technology? Yeah, so I think, I think what will happen to start with, uh, Martin, is that we will utilize existing nuclear license sites. And you, you'd build small modular plants like in a, uh, in a pack form. So it could be um, two, four, six, eight small reactors together as a unit, as a pack with on, a, uh, on a, um, an existing nuclear license site. There's enough space on the existing sites to be able to do that. And actually, for us here in the United Kingdom, some of the sites that previously had the Magnox reactors um, are actually probably more suited. The sites are smaller. The cooling water requirements are less onerous. The grid connections are less onerous for really big plants. You know, sites like Hinkley Point C that the government has selected and Sizewell and Wilfer are the big sites. Um, we've got smaller sites in the UK. So I think we, we would see utilising those would be a good way forward. And of course, there are willing, supportive communities that have been used to nuclear. So we'd see those sites used. Further into the future, uh, we might start to see uh, advanced modular uh, reactors being constructed that uh, the site licence requirements may be less onerous. So we're actually working very closely uh, with our colleagues in, in Japan on a high-temperature gas-cooled uh, reactor. Uh, so it's a reactor system that was constructed a number of years ago in the 1960s, but 
um, effectively wasn't really taken forward and the world was dominated by like light water reactors or pressurized water boiling water reactors but high temperature gas cooled reactors really interesting very novel types of fuel so the fuel is like small pellets um, that uh, basically uh, um, uh, have have, a, have inherent safety characteristics associated with them that they can contain the fission product so even if like you, you get in a nuclear reactor, the key thing that you need to avoid is the loss of coolant. Otherwise, you could get fuel melt. Uh, and that's like effectively what happened in, in Fukushima. And what happens in, in high temperature gas cooled reactors is even if you do have loss of coolant, the fuel doesn't reach a critical point where effectively it melts. So it remains intact and stable. That, that is called inherent safety. You don't have to have lots of, of active safety systems to avoid a loss situation. Um, the UK developed these reactors a number of years ago. They were only taken for by a few countries, and Japan was one that had an operating high-temperature gas-cooled reactor. We are now going back to look at those reactor systems, and we've been working on a government program for the past, um, ooh, must be almost a decade now, uh, redeveloping that fuel. So um, we now are in a really interesting collaboration ourselves at NNL with our colleagues at um, Japan Atomic Energy Agency uh, to develop this reactor system. And this is where my world seems to have gone right around in a circle because it was Japan Atomic Energy Agency that I worked with when I was over in Japan all those years ago. So small world have gone right around in a circle and I'm back working with the Japanese uh, again now on a really interesting technology. One of the advantages here though is the temperature of these reactors um, can be around say 600, 800, 900 degrees. That unlocks industrial heat applications for things like hydrogen generation, um, cement, fertilizer, glass manufacture, all of these high temperature industrial processes, you could utilize the output from one of these reactors. It's going to be a really interesting time in nuclear over you know, the coming uh, couple of decades as we see these reactors uh, demonstrated again. What about um, fusion? Where do you stand on that? Do you know, what's the, uh, what's the prognosis? What's the prospects for, you know, seeing a, a working reactor that delivers electricity to the grid within your lifetime? Is that on the cards? Well, of course, uh, being someone that worked originally on the on the fusion program, I, I have a I have a soft spot uh, for for fusion. I think they're making great advances, and uh, and actually this week uh, we've seen the jet facility come to the end of its uh, lifetime. So very sad to to see that having worked on the jet fusion program, but uh, actually th there's a lot of um, optimism now with fusion. So. Um, colleagues at UK AEA taking forward the STEP reactor system. We've got ITER, the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, and a number of startups actually that have entered uh, fusion. Uh, and I think all of this innovation helps as well as the large uh, projects. Um, they're making great progress. There are you know, engineering challenges, but just like we've got engineering challenges, there's engineering challenges there to be solved. And it's one of those, if it works, and you can demonstrate it, um, and you can utilize it, then it, it's got significant advantage. Uh, it really has as far as addressing you know, net zero and, and energy supplies. It's worth going for, and, and it's worth making the, the investment to, to overcome you know, these engineering challenges 
now for working fusion reactors. So, yeah, I think that uh, I think we'll see. I think in the latter half of this century, then the commercialization of fusion uh, systems, assuming that these problems can be overcome with the demonstrators that they're talking about in the next couple of decades, then, uh, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think it'd be a great opportunity. I think then you'd probably see fission and fusion working together. They would, you know, fulfill different aims alongside all the other um, uh, low carbon technologies that are going to be needed. Mm. And before we go, final thing, you know, if, you know, you've obviously started out yourself as a physics graduate. If there are physics people listening who are students now or graduates, you know, what what are the what are the attractions of working in the uh, in the nuclear sector? You know, well, I think it's fascinating. Honestly, I'll tell you, if I was starting my career again, I think uh, given that we are uh, witnessing a, a like a renaissance of nuclear at uh, present, then I think it's fascinating the the opportunity to work on advanced reactors, you know, advanced fuel type. Uh, I think is wonderful. Equally, there are still a number of challenges that require physics for legacy waste management and cleanup. You know, there's fascinating work to be done, and we need to be able to do that because that's our license to operate. If we can't address historic legacy issues in in nuclear and show that we can manage nuclear in a safe manner, then we shouldn't have a license to effectively build new plants either. So. The challenge is there, but equally, we're working on some some fascinating areas, uh, looking at nuclear um, power and propulsion systems for um, future space missions. So we're working quite closely with the European Space Agency for the future power systems uh, for uh, Mars uh, colonization um, uh, and also for moon exploration as well, looking to go to the dark side of the moon where effectively you haven't got solar, so you rely on on nuclear. So we're looking at how we can um, develop the radionuclear thermal generators that are needed uh, and the electricity generators, plus also the potential for propulsion systems uh, as well. We're also um, looking into a lot of work on nuclear health and medicine, so where we can... Um, utilize uh, alpha radionuclides for really targeted cancer treatment and some early work that's been undertaken is really promising. So rather than like chemotherapy, which is, um, you know, a, a bit like hitting all of the cells and you hope that you're going to kill more of the bad cells than the good cells, with targeted alpha cancer treatment, you can attach it so it's actually right where the cancer the cancerous cells are in the body, and some of the success we've seen recently um, is phenomenal. So, um, what I'm saying to, to folks in in NNL, you know, the opportunity to work on it could be net zero, could be cleanup, um, uh, legacy waste management, space exploration, nuclear health and medicine, and that's why you know we have our purpose in the organisation, nuclear science to benefit society, and. And it's great, you know. It's all of those things that think, yeah, that's going to get you out of bed in the morning to uh, to go and work on some really interesting projects. So for young, yeah, physicists or physicists that are starting out in their career, I think it's a I think it's a wonderful opportunity. Well, you got me sold. So that sounds great. Um, brilliant, Paul. Lovely to talk to you. And thanks for thanks for joining us on the podcast. No, thanks very much. Really enjoyed it. That was Paul Howarth, CEO of the UK's National Nuclear Laboratory, in conversation with Physics World's Mateen Durrani.
I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Paul and Mateen for joining me today, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Physics World.